Amen. Man, praise God for what he did and what we celebrate today, because if it was not for him, we would all be bound to our sin. I was thinking this morning um, as I woke up, I woke, opened my eyes, and I was like, man, did I prepare the wrong message? It looks like Christmas out there. Was Jesus born today or was he risen today? And then I was thinking Isaiah chapter 1. Excuse me, I've been battling a cold this week, but we're going to get through it. Verse 18 says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should become like wool. What a beautiful picture of what Christ has done. That he has gone to the grave, but he rose out of it so that our sins might be as white as snow. So that they might be erased as far as the east is from the west. And that's the reason that we celebrate Easter. In 2018, History Channel published an article, and it was entitled this, Five of History's Most Dramatic Rescues. Some of these on on this list were, one of them was a group of miners, and I quote, this was the headline, a group of miners spend 68 days below the surface. Some of you may remember in 2010, an event happened that captivated an international audience. 33 Chilean men were trapped underground in this copper mine as the shafts collapsed and Rescuers were trying to get to them to pull them out of the mine shaft, and they couldn't get to them. They tried a different route, and other mine shafts collapsed. These 33 men were in there for over two and a half months in a room that they called the refuge. They managed, the rescuers managed to get a borehole through there for some oxygen, and they could also communicate with them what was going on in the outside world, where they were at in their attempt to rescue over two and a half months later, the drilling process finally was accomplished and they saved all 33 men. Another one said this, a baby spends 58 hours at the bottom of a well and emerges a household name. In 1987, 18-month-old Jessica McClure stepped into an abandoned well in her aunt's home in Midland, Texas, this very narrow well. 18-month-year-old girl falls 22 feet to the bottom of this well, and there's no way to get to her. How do they get to her? Because if they start to dig, rocks begin to fall, and she would be covered. So after 58 hours, they, or they finally get to her. What they did was they drilled a well beside the well, and then they tunneled in beside her to pull her out and rescue her. She could not save herself, yet the rescuer saved her. One more was this said a single man risked everything to save a Mexican village. Jesus Garcia was a railroad brakeman, and on November 7, 1907, he became a hero of one of history's most dangerous rescue missions. There was a train that was hauling dynamite that was in transit to a mine to be delivered. It was in this little town in Sonora, Mexico, and they stop for a break, and all of a sudden the train catches on fire. And... Yeah, that's a problem in all regards, but in this regard, the trains that were on fire were the very train cars that had the dynamite in them. If the train, if it reached the dynamite, not only would it kill everyone in the train, but everyone in the village all around. So Jesus quickly acts and he jumps in and he puts the car in the engine in reverse and starts to reverse it for four miles. Four miles down the tracks, the train explodes, ends up killing 13 people, 
but nothing like what would have happened if he would not have got in the train and put it in reverse. All that was left of him was his boot. See, all rescues are the same. Someone steps in and saves someone who cannot save themselves. Sometimes it even costs the rescuer their very own life. You know what stuck out to me the most, though, about reading this list is the thing that was crazy to me was they really forgot about the most extreme rescue story in history. I read about it one time, and it was this, that there was a story of a man one time who died a death that others deserved to die, and a story of a man who defeated death so that others might live. For many, this is a myth. For others, it's merely history, and for some, yet for some, it's the fullness of life. That rescue story, that extreme rescue story, is what we celebrate today. Well, Jesus went to the cross to pay a debt that I owed, he did not stay there, he rose out of it, defeating sin and death. See, one thing is true about any rescue story. Well, observers of the story who may be apart from afar or they may realize it from afar, they forget some details. It doesn't really mean much to them. In fact, a lot of people that probably read this article forgot all about these extreme rescue stories. But for the one who was rescued, they can never forget the details. They can never forget what had happened. They can never forget that they should have died, but someone else came and took their place or risked their lives so that they might live. Easter, at its core, is an extreme rescue story. That's what it is. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate. And maybe this morning, you don't understand this rescue story. Or maybe even why you had to be rescued. You may have your doubts about this Jesus guy who supposedly rose from the grave. Maybe even you feel like he has let you down. I just want you to know, I am so glad that you're here. Because Jesus is the ultimate rescue story Nothing else compares. God, we come before you in this moment. God, knowing that I am weak, but you are strong. God, knowing that I am often faithless, but you are faithful. And God, I pray in this moment right now, God, as we walk through your word and see what you have accomplished, God, for someone in this room that is doubting, God, that just doesn't believe God, that it just doesn't make sense, I pray by the power of your spirit that we would not only see this morning that you rose from the grave, but the reason that you had to rise from the grave, the reason you had to go to the grave, God, that it would make great sense, God, that there are people in this room that would have entered dead and left alive, God, that there are people in this room who entered shackled and left free. God, we thank you for what you have done. For if it was not for Jesus, we would all be doomed and stuck in this mire of sin, God, left to ourselves. So, God, we pray right now by the power of your spirit that you would move in ways that I cannot. And we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, and you're probably thinking, well, that's not the normal Easter story. Well, maybe not, but yes, it is at the same time where we are at in this story is Jesus has already risen from the grave. He met Mary and Mary Magdalene, and he met some of the other disciples in a room. But then Thomas, one of the disciples, was not in the room the first time Jesus entered. So what we're going to talk about today is this account of what happened with Jesus and Thomas. Starting in verse 24, it says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, he was one of the disciples, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and the place my finger in the mark of his nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. To start this, we don't know why Thomas was not present in the room the first time when Jesus entered. We know that Thomas traveled all the time with these disciples, but something had changed between when he was traveling and this time now. What had changed is this God who he was serving was crucified on a cross and went to the grave. I can only imagine that Thomas probably had his doubts. This God who I've given my life to, he's abandoned me. He's left me. How can I believe in a God that said he was coming yet He went to the grave and he's left me to fend for myself. After all, now everyone is accusing us, the disciples, of stealing the body of Jesus, saying that he rose from the grave. That's why they were locked in the room. They were locked because they were scared of everyone that was coming at them because the disciples were accused of stealing the body of Jesus. So here's Thomas, and I have to imagine that he may have given up on God. He may have said, if that's you, God, if you didn't do what you said you were going to do, then I'm out. I want nothing to do with you. That's maybe why he was not with the disciples. And often, I want you to hear this, because often this happens. We miss Jesus when we pull away from those who are following him. Thomas was not in the room the first time Jesus came back to show himself. If he would have been, he would have seen that Jesus had literally risen from the grave, but instead he pulled away. He had his doubts. Why? Because this God had left him. This God had denied him. So how can I believe in a God like this? I want you to know that throughout Scripture, Thomas was often one who fought staunchly for God. We, we see earlier that when Jesus was going to go to Judea, Thomas said, well, it may cost me my life, but we need to go with him. He was really a realistic person. He was a logical person. We see in scripture, he was probably an intellectual person. He was probably not driven by emotion. He was probably very factual and logical, and everything that he was seeing was not making sense. Do you relate? You hear about this Jesus guy who, yeah, maybe you believe that he rose from the grave, but it really doesn't make sense to you because you need all the facts. Because you need to know for a fact that if I can't see him, this is what Thomas was saying, if I can't see him, if I can't touch him, there is no way that I will believe. I must touch him and I must see him. That was his demand. That was his requirements. And that's what he told his disciples. Yeah, right. You must have been smoking something good because I didn't see Jesus anywhere. 
He was in the grave, and now you're saying he walked into the room with me and he was alive? Yeah, right. I've already given up on him because he's already forgotten about me. He's already left me. So Thomas gives the disciples these requirements and demands, and it's two things. I must see him and I must touch him if I'm going to believe. Maybe you're in this room, and maybe you've been saying the same thing all your life, or maybe recently. Maybe you go to church once a year on Easter because it's what you do, but you don't really buy into this Jesus thing. You think the resurrection is a myth that is for weak Christians. Or maybe you're saying, I won't believe without God healing me or healing my marriage or healing my mom. Or if God, if you'll answer the prayers that I want answered, then I'll believe. That's my demand. That's my requirement. It doesn't make sense logically for me to believe in this because I can't see it. Therefore, God, you better show yourself or I'm not believing. Well, I want you to know you're in great company because Thomas walked with Jesus before he went to the grave and he still doubted and he still came to God with demands and requirements. What's amazing is what we're going to see what happens when he actually experiences Jesus. All of a sudden they fade away. But Thomas, you're in great company if you're in that situation this morning. Verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Which is like crazy because obviously, like I said, they're locked in there because they're afraid for their life. And Jesus walks in and is like, don't be afraid. Don't be scared of anything. I'm here. In my presence is the fullness of joy. Jesus is saying, when I am here, you have nothing to fear. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, don't miss this, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. What do we see here? We don't know, because scripture doesn't say it, and this is the only account in John of actually this story. But it does not appear that in the moment when Jesus entered the room that Thomas's requirements or demands were anywhere, anywhere close to his mind. Jesus walks in and says, here I am, Thomas. Come and put your finger in my hands. Come and put your finger in my side. But Jesus walks in and what, 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 does, what does scripture say? It says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He was completely undone at the presence of his Savior. And then Jesus says, have you have believed because you have seen me? It says nothing about touching him. Thomas may have touched him, but he may not have. He may have been completely undone, and in the moment, all these requirements, all these doubts, all these demands that he had that say, if I'm going to believe, I need this in the presence of God, they dissolved. And all he could do is fall on his face and say, my Lord and my God. Here's my prayer this morning. That in this room, if you have come in with demands and requirements for God, hey, God, if you're good, you better do this, and I better be able to touch you, and I better be able to see you. I pray that by the power of his spirit, that he would touch your heart in such a way that you would see that you are in his presence right now. He is 
the word. And as the Holy Spirit of God works on your heart, that those demands and those requirements will begin to fade away. Because as we're going to see, the message of Easter is the greatest rescue story the world has ever heard. And when you're in the presence of Jesus, everything else dissolves. Why do you think, if you came to Easter last year, I hear it all the time, man, I really needed that. I haven't been in church in a year. God just really spoke to me. I needed that. And maybe you haven't been back for a year, and there's no judgment zone here. I'm just glad that you're here now. But think about this. In that last year, you probably had lots of demands and lots of requirements. Why? Because you probably weren't in the presence of Jesus. Your life may look a whole lot different if you were pouring into who God was, if you were reading his word, if you were in his presence, because I've seen it in my life. When I'm walking with him, the concerns of the world just slowly fade away because it's perspective. When I'm not in the presence of God, I have many demands, I have many requirements, and I have many concerns. Just a thought that if God speaks to you this morning, don't forget it. And his presence is the fullness of joy. If God speaks to you this morning and you're like, man, it kind of makes sense. Don't pull away for another year. Invest in him. Pour into him and watch what he will do in your life. Verse 30, it says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Jesus is saying to Thomas, Thomas, believe. Believe what? He's asking Thomas to believe that he has defeated death to give him newness of life. And you're thinking, well, that's great, Luke. I've heard that all my life, but I don't even know what that means. Praise God, because we're about to figure it out together. It really is remarkable when we see it. See, the beauty of Easter is this. We talk a whole lot about the resurrection. But the resurrection doesn't make any sense unless we know why the resurrection needed to occur. Just to come to church and be like, oh, I'm coming to church on the resurrection, which, by the way, I've got to move this. It's kind of bothering me i got to come to church to hear about this resurrection so that I can have something come to life inside of me this year. (laughs) What is that? We really don't get what we've been saved from. And if we don't get what we've been saved from, we can't understand what we have been saved to. So here's the gospel. And you may be saying, like, Luke, well, what does it mean to be dead in my sins? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's the reason for Easter. This is the rescue story. See, sin, the Bible says, is that we were born sinners. What does sin mean? I'm sure that many of you are like, I've heard that word my entire life. I don't even know what it means. Sin, sinner, yeah. I know you Christians look down your noses and judge a lot. Yeah, maybe I'm a sinner, but why does it matter? Sin literally means to miss the mark. To miss... The mark, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned or missed the mark and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Perfection. Holiness. See, man was created to be in the presence of a holy, a righteous, and a just God. For in his perfection is his glory. But man, in his pursuit to be equal with God, as we see in Genesis 3, disobeyed. 
God. And as a result, Adam and Eve were pushed from the garden and separated from this presence of a holy and a loving God. More on this in a second. But to say this, the standard of his holiness is perfection. So all that to say, the mark is God. He is perfect and holy. And unless we are perfect, we miss the mark. Think of it this way. I'm a shooter. I love shooting. I love guns. I love reloading. It's amazing. There's powder. There's case pressure. There's primers. There's seating depth. The goal of all reloading to me is to try to shoot a one-hole, five-shot group. So not like shot, 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 like shot, 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 shot. Precision. That's my mark. That's my goal. My mark is perfection. The problem is there are so many variables. Case pressure, powder temperature, seating depth, um, case density, case weight, uh, you name it. It doesn't mean anything to some of you. That's fine. But the whole goal, the whole point is this. My pursuit is perfection. Have I ever shot a one-hole group? No. Have I been close? Kind of. Will I ever shoot a one-hole group? No, because there's too many variables. I mean, I'm the one shooting it. I have breathing issues. I shake once in a while. I jerk the trigger. See, there's all these issues, so I miss the mark every time. No matter how hard I try, I don't hit the mark. That's what God is saying. Luke, you were born a sinner. No matter how hard you try, you will always miss the mark. The mark is a one-hole group with literally all you can see is five shots in one hole, no fray anywhere. And God is saying this morning, that's who you have to be to be in my presence, to dwell in my presence again. You must be perfect. So you say, well, that's great, Luke. Well, what's the result of missing the mark? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's very encouraging. It's death. (laughs) Right? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Wage is something that we earned or deserved. So we need to hit a mark. We've missed the mark. And the result of missing the mark is that we have earned or received death as a reward. Great reward, right? Sounds pretty amazing to me. Not. But because we missed the mark of perfection, we deserve an earned death, which is this, basically, separation from dwelling in the presence of God. I want you to hear this very clearly. It's not that Because sin entered, God can no longer be in the presence of sin or a sinner. That's faulty theology. If that was the case, he could draw no one to himself. It is that we can no longer dwell in the presence of a holy God. Those are completely different. Think about it. The moment that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden, what happened? One, they realized that they were naked. And they began to run and hide from God. What did God do? He pursued them. He said, where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Why are you hiding? He was still in their presence. At this moment, they were sin. They were sinners. They were guilty as charged. Once he found them, he pushed them out of the garden or pushed them out of his presence, and he set an angel to guard to make sure they could not return. Why? They could no longer dwell in the presence of a holy God, but that does not mean that God cannot be in the presence of sin or a sinner. See, we missed the mark. 
The result of them missing the mark was ultimately death. See, we must understand the nature of our sin or the gospel does not make any sense at all. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm just this good person. I was born a good person and my environment kind of shaped me to be this bad person. Well, why do I need a Savior? I'm inherently good. I mean, aren't some good people going to make it to heaven? I mean, if God is love, then, yeah, they, they must have to get to heaven, right? Well, God is also just, as we're going to talk about in a second. But see, once we get this, all our demands and requirements we need to believe honestly don't seem that important. They kind of seem like weak excuses when we understand really the nature of who we are. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this. I want you to hear this very clearly. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you, in once you, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what this is saying. As a result of the fall, we are adverse to all things good. Our sin comes from our sin nature. We were born sinners. We can't help it. It's what we want. It's what we desire. It's what we crave. We can't look at it like we come into this world as innocent and we're looking for a way to find God. We came into this world with fleshly desires that were far from and against God. Desires of your body and your mind that were alienated from him. Came with desires that were evil. And the devil and the world did not seek you out. You already rested in them. It's the nature of who we are. It's our selfish desires. Why? Because this is the very nature that we crave it's how we were born if we don't understand the sinfulness of our sin then jesus has no appeal to us if jesus just came to make good people better why would i ever give my life to him it makes no sense i'm already good enough i i haven't murdered anyone i haven't done anything really that dumb i've done stupid things but not like crazy stupid things so why would i need jesus i don't need that crutch it's because we really don't understand why Jesus came. See, people who don't believe in original sin have obviously never had children. <laughs> right? As Bodhi Bauckham says, this is not a little angel. It's a viper in a diaper. <laughs> to which I say, amen, I have a nine-month-year-old. He also goes on to say that the reason God made them so small is so that they would not kill you. The reason he made them so cute was so that you would not kill them. <laughs> Amen. The point being, you can't argue that we were born sinners. <laughs> A baby doesn't come out of the womb just all happy. No, the baby comes out of the womb and they want you to know that they own you from that point forward, right? the reality of it. See, we were born 
separated from God. We were born a sinner guilty as charged opposing God. Well, guess what? That's the bad news. So what's the good news? The good news is why we celebrate Easter. Listen to the latter half of the verse in Ephesians 2 I read earlier. We were all this. Then Paul says this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. If that can't get an amen, we got something messed up. That we were this, alienated from God, everything selfish, but God in his mercy pursued us and came after us. Why? Because God knew we could never hit the mark perfectly, so he sent someone to hit it for us, Jesus. That's why we celebrate Easter, but this was not cheap. It was very costly because God is just. Sin had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for, and for sin to be defeated, death had to be defeated. That's why Jesus had to rise from the grave, because if Jesus can't defeat death, neither can he defeat sin, and we're still stuck in it and entrenched in it until the day that we die, eternally separated from this good and loving God. That's why Jesus had to come. See, according to the Old Testament law, the only way to forgive sins was through the shedding of perfect blood, also known as something had to die to pay the penalty of death. Hebrews 9.22 says this, according to the law, in fact, nearly everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The only problem with the Old Testament was in the last nine months, I would have had to make numerous sacrifices every day for every time the little viper in a diaper annoyed me. <laughs> I couldn't measure up. I couldn't hit the mark. There's no way to hit that level of perfection. This is the gospel, that Jesus took the penalty and the punishment for my sin, laid it upon himself, went to the grave, but on the third day blew out of it to say, you know what, death? You no longer have sting. You know what, death? You no longer have authority. All those who will believe upon my name, the finished work of Christ, will no longer be defined by their death nature. They will be defined by the life that I have given them, and they cannot earn it. Only I can earn it. They cannot. They do not deserve it. No one deserved it. The message of the gospel is that we owed a debt we could not pay, so Jesus paid the debt that he did not owe on our behalf. That's the gospel. It's not this, I'm kind of a good guy and Jesus wants to make me better. No, it's I'm a dead guy. I have no breath in my lungs and Jesus has come to give me eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the message of the gospel that none of us deserved it but that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But Jesus didn't want us to stay there. Because why? Because he knew that when you breathe your last, if you do not believe in the gospel, you will be separated eternally from dwelling in the presence of God. You'll be separated from this holy and loving God. And he did not want that, and neither do I want that for you. 
can't even explain it. To live this life of death for all eternity. A little side note <coughs> is you've probably heard this song. Pardon me, I gotta take a drink. You probably heard the song, the father turned his face away at the moment on the cross. <laughs> and maybe it's caused you some confusion. Well, how can this God turn his face away from people, from his own son? I just want you to tell, it's, tell you it's horrible theology. It's like this view of God, like he couldn't bear to watch his son hanging on a cross. Yet the Bible says it was his very will to crush him. Yet the Bible says that Jesus was pleased, or God was pleased with his son hanging on the cross. See, almost like it wasn't his plan, and something just happened. He's like, oh, I can't even watch. I'm, I, I can't even watch. I'm turning my face away from you. You're all on your own. I want you to know a few things of why this is false. One is the father was never more pleased with the son than he was on the cross. Isaiah 53.10, pleased, pleased the Lord to bruise him. Who? Jesus. It pleased him. Why? So that you could have life. That's a crazy kind of love. The second thing is the cross was always the Father's plan. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, Scripture says. Another reason this is faulty is the triune union, the Trinity, cannot be severed. It cannot be pulled apart. It's not like they can turn on each other. If God could turn on Jesus, then Jesus could also turn on himself. Because they're one. They're three in one. Psalm 21 and Mark 16.34 say this. It doesn't say that the Father rejected the Son, Jesus, as he was going to the cross. And in Psalm 22.1, prophesying of Jesus going to the cross, said this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we look at this in context, he's saying, why are you so far from helping me? Can't you see my pain? Can't you see what I'm going through? This was a rhetorical question. Jesus fully knew that God had not forsaken him. But in his cry, in his humanity, hanging on the cross, he reached out to his father. The next thing is Psalm 22 affirms that the father sustained the son on the cross. So if he sustained the son on the cross, how could he have turned his face away from on the cross? They don't work. Isaiah 57, but the Lord God helps me. Talking about when he was on the cross. And lastly, I just want to say this. It's not anywhere in scripture that Jesus turned his face or that God turned his face on the son. So to make a theology off that is just pure bad. <laughs> But all this to say, I want you to see this. It was the Father's will to crush his son, and that ought to explain a magnificent form of love for you and me. He did not need to. He allowed his own son to suffer. Why? So that we could also dwell with them again one day. And you may be thinking, well, that's great, Luke, because... God is just, and, but I don't, I don't really understand how God can be loving and just at the same time. Because if he was loving, shouldn't everyone just go to heaven? Because he loves all people. He does love all people. But he's also just. Think of it this way. Let's say you're driving, and you're in high school, and you are cruising down the highway at 
105 miles an hour. And all of a sudden, you look in your rearview mirror, and there's cop lights. So you pull over, and you know you're busted. The cop comes in, and he says, did you know that you're going over 50 miles an hour over the speed limit? He said, yes, sir, I did. He said, but I usually don't. I just today. And he said, well, that doesn't matter. Get in the car. So he impounds your car, and he puts you in the back of the police car, and he's driving you to the courthouse. The problem was you lived in a small town, and your dad was the judge. And you kept thinking on the way, well, my dad loves me. Surely he's going to have grace upon this. Surely he understands that I'm, for the most part, good. I don't usually speed this fast that often. But then you also think on your way that, but I also know that my dad always comes home, and he never prosecutes the innocent. He only prosecutes the guilty. He's a good judge. That's who he is. He's great. He's good. So then you begin to worry, and you're thinking, I don't know what's going to win, his love or his justice. And you pull in, and the cop unloads you, and you stand bef- sit down before your dad. He's behind the bench. And he looks at you, and he said, son, is the charge true? Were you going over 50 miles an hour over the speed limit? And he said, yes, sir, it is. And your dad says, all right, guilty is charged. You owe $1,000 or a week in jail and hits his gavel and calls the bailiff to take you out of the courtroom. And you don't have $1,000 because you're in high school, so you're like, well, I guess I owe the week in jail. You begin to get escorted out until your dad stands up and says, wait, take him back here. The bailiff brings you back to your dad, and your dad looks at you, and he takes off his robe, comes out from behind the bench, pulls a checkbook out of his pocket, and he writes a check for $1,000. And he said, son, I will pay the price for your charge. Will you accept it? It's up to him to decide, does he want to pay for a week in jail, or does he want to accept this free gift from his dad, who is both loving and just? This is God. That's God. Sin has to be paid for. Because sin is what hung his own son on the cross. He is just and it will be paid. But he is also completely loving in that he has sent his son and he's saying, all you have to do is believe. Do you believe? And if you believe, you are no longer guilty as charged. You are free. And whom the son sets free is free indeed. So yes, God can and is loving and just. The choice is yours this morning. Will you pay the price for your sin, or will Jesus pay the price for your sin? That's all that it's about. We can't measure up. We can't earn it. As we wrap up, here's why the resurrection matters. Because your charge, which is guilty, opposing God, all things against God, fighting against God, won nothing to do with God, had no pursuit of God, even in your requirements and your demands, saying, God, prove yourself if you're this, but if you don't do this, then I won't believe. At the end of your life, none of those demands and requirements hold any value. Because Jesus is saying that I have given everything. Here's why the resurrection matters. Because Jesus has taken your charge as guilty, and if you believe in big red ink called his blood stamps paid in full. You don't have to pay it. Jesus paid it. But you have to believe. And if you don't believe, 
It's your own fault when justice comes because God is a just God and he will punish sin. He, so for you, he either punished it through his son or you will reap the punishment of your own sin. The message of Easter is you don't have to because Jesus defeated death, defeated sin, and rose from the grave to give you the newness of life. Jesus didn't deserve to die. We did. But God's justice required someone to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven. I'll say it again. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Because we owed a debt we could not pay. When we see the gospel in light of that, I promise you this, your requirements and demands of God, God, you've forsaken me, you've forgotten all about me, God, I don't even know why you're doing this to me, I don't understand, I'm just telling you, you've lost sight of who God is and the reason he came. You have lost sight of what he has done for you because this earth is temporary, but we don't live in the temporary. We look to the eternal because it is so much more than this. The beauty of Easter is not only did he rise, but he's returning to call his people home. That's the beauty of Easter. And I don't know where you're at in this room. We've had a lot of death in our church lately. And it breaks my heart. There's pain. There's agony. There's grieving. But the beauty of the gospel is for those who are in Christ, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because Christ is returning. This is not the end. And if you think that this is all there is, is this life, you are of all men to be pitied. Jesus is returning to call you home. Don't let your demands and your requirements to God keep you from his presence because I promise you this, if the band wants to come up, one day all your requirements and demands and all the things you're demanding of God to show himself will all fall away because one day all will be in the presence of Jesus. The only difference is he your savior or is he your judge? And in that moment, when you come before him, I promise you, you're not going to be thinking anything about the prayers that you thought he should have answered that he did not answer. You're not going to be thinking anything about all the things that God has not done. You're going to be overwhelmed by his presence and forget all about it and realize all of life wrapped up in this, that I was dead, but Christ made me alive so that I'm no longer separated from him forever, that I might dwell in the presence of an almighty, loving, and holy God. If Jesus has paid for your sin, that is your response. If he is not this morning, I could cry thinking about it. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a myth. If you've come in this room and you're still like, well, shove off, God. I challenge you to start reading his word. Start asking him to show himself. And watch what he might do. Because he pursues his people. Because he loves his people. He's after his people. But if you choose to respond to the God of heaven, when you breathe your last breath, you will have no opportunity to dwell in the presence of God. Jesus ends this by, or verse 31 says this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. 
want you to hear this as we wrap up. It does not say by knowing all about Easter and thinking that maybe Jesus rose from the grave or even believing that Jesus walked and did rise from the grave, but I don't know the implications. I don't really get it. I just know it as a head knowledge. You cannot just know that the sacrifice counted for you. You must believe that it counted for you. Whatever your demands and doubts are, I'm telling you, like Thomas, when you're truly in the presence of Jesus, all demands, all doubts begin to fade away. They all become very insignificant. Significant. So here's the question. If you walk out of this building today on the slick roads, and you hit a slick patch, and you get in a car accident, and you breathe your last breath, do you know that you know that you know that you're in right standing with the God of heaven and that you are going to heaven. Did you know that you can know that you're going to heaven? And it's all based upon Jesus. It's all based upon his finished work. If you don't know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven today, if you don't know that you know that you know that your sins have been paid for, today is the day. Don't wait, because if you get in a car accident on the way out of here and take your last breath and you have not confessed to the King of kings and the Lord of lords that he is your life, your Savior, and your King, you will be separated from dwelling in the presence of this all-loving, all-powerful, gracious, and just God for all of eternity. Literally, life and death are in the balance. Heaven is not full of good people. Heaven is full of forgiven people. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter what you walked in here dealing with. It doesn't matter how many times you've doubted like Thomas and maybe given up on God and said, the heck with you, God, I'm done with you because you haven't held up your end of the deal. I'm here to tell you this morning that he has held up his end of the deal because he rose from the grave, giving us what no one on earth could offer us, freedom and life to the full. That's why we celebrate Easter. God, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. God, I thank you that you're good. I thank you that you're loving and kind, and I thank you that you have taken us from where we are dead in our sins and given us life. And God, I pray that if there's someone in this room that walked in here far from you, many demands, many requirements, saying, shove off, God, I'm done with you, that right now, by the power of your spirit, that you would invade their soul in a way that sends shock down their spine, God that you would invade their life in a way that they have never experienced you before, that they would quit holding off, that they would quit fighting against you, God, that they would realize that the God of heaven is pursuing them, and in your presence is the fullness of joy, and in your presence all demands and requirements simply vanish because what we need, what we were wired for was your presence. We were created to be in the presence of a living God, and sin separated us from that God. And so there is nothing greater than when your presence falls and we experience a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be. God, I pray right now in this room, if there's someone who as far from you that you would draw them near. I'm just going to ask, as all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if this morning God is just tugging on your heart and you're saying, I don't even know all about this guy, but all I know is that I, 
I, I'm done trying to do it my own way. I need this Savior to restore me. I ask that you just lift your hand so I can pray for you. Is there anyone in this room that God is just working on and you just say, man, Luke, I'm tired of doing it on my own? God, I thank you for what you're doing in this room. I thank you for the people that you're drawing. I thank you for how you are moving in this place right now, bringing people that are dead and giving them life. God, and I pray, Lord, that as we walk out of this room today, God, that we would leave knowing we had an encounter with the God of heaven who has come to redeem us and set us free. God, we praise you and give you all the glory for defeating sin and death that we might have life. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.